Due to the graphic nature of this Kingpin's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of graphic material that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. New York City, 1931. Vincent took a drag of his cigarette and let the smoke fill the car. Frankie coughed in the passenger's seat, but Vincent didn't open the windows. He didn't want to draw any attention. Not that anyone would notice them. It was an unusually busy day in Harlem. He glanced across the street at the Helmar Social Club. There, sitting by the window, was Joey Rao. Joey Rao's gang controlled the best territory in the city. An ambitious new bootlegger wanted in, which meant Joey had to go. Enter Vincent. Getting rid of people was what he got paid for. Vincent put out his cigarette and started the car. He stopped right in front of the club and rolled down the windows. Joey Rao saw them immediately, and he knew exactly why they were there. Joey reached for his gun, but it was too late. Vincent and Frankie raised their machine guns and opened fire. If only Vincent had seen the group of children playing nearby. It was an unusually busy day in Harlem. Hi, I'm Howell Hargett. And I'm Kate Leonard, and this is Kingpins. Every week, we journey inside the ranks of organized crime rings, from street gangs to mafiosos, to understand how a kingpin or queenpin rises to the top of the underworld. And why they fall. As we follow the lives of infamous crime bosses, we'll explore how money and power changed them and how it changed the community around them. This week, we'll dive deep into the life and misdeeds of Vincent Mad Dog Call, one of the most infamous gangsters of New York City in the 1930s. We'll talk about his rapid ascent inside the Irish mob, his apprenticeship turned open war with his mentor, and his reign of terror as one of the most violent kidnappers and murderers of his time. Next week, we'll explore the accident that led to his downfall. You can listen to all of ParCast's shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, or your favorite podcast directory. If you enjoy the show, one of the best ways to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. Now, let's dive into the violent life of Vincent Call. New York City. 1930. The excitement of the Roaring Twenties was fading away. The gin-fueled parties were sobering up as an economic depression loomed in the distance. Ironically, as the government had tried to restrict debauchery throughout the 1920s, there was an unprecedented rise in crime. During the Prohibition, local gangsters made fortunes through bootlegging liquor. The shortened supply and heightened demand for their product led to violent turf wars between gangs. The streets of New York were mayhem. Battles were instigated by years-old grudges, betrayals, and self-interested business decisions. The police found corpses on sidewalks and alleyways on a daily basis, and they often couldn't decide which mob war they belonged to. In the midst of these wars, Vincent Mad Dog Call emerged victorious. 
For many years, Mad Dog belonged to one of the most influential Irish mob gangs in New York, spearheaded by gangster luminary Dutch Schultz. But after a few personal conflicts, Vincent decided to branch out and start his own gang. Vincent lacked the business savvy to take on the illegal liquor business that had made Dutch Schultz famous. But he had his own strengths. Instead, he and his gang made ends meet by kidnapping people for ransom. Before the Lindbergh baby made national headlines in 1932, kidnapping was not considered a federal offense. It wasn't uncommon for gangsters to kidnap celebrities or rival gang members for the ransom money. And Vincent elevated the extortion tactic almost to an art. Vincent and his gang kidnapped wealthy people that had close ties with illegal businesses. These people would never report their kidnappings to the authorities, who were already patiently waiting for an excuse to look into their finances. They would have a hard time explaining to the Bureau of Internal Revenue where they'd gotten the money to pay their ransoms. Vincent was the best at what he did. His gang built a reputation for quick, effective, and often horrifically violent kidnappings and murders. He allegedly kidnapped Broadway singer Rudy Valley for a $100,000 ransom. He got $25,000 for the release of Sherman Billingsley, owner of the Stork Club, the most famous restaurant in the city. And he garnered $83,000 for Billy Warren, the banker for the top New York mobs. The kidnappings were profitable enough, but Vincent liked to diversify his skill set. He also made himself available as a hitman for hire. In those cases, the jobs usually started with kidnapping. If there's an opportunity to extort a ransom, it's just foolish not to take it. But once the money was in his hands... All kinds of people needed to see someone drop. Gang members with grudges, new mobsters with something to prove, debt collectors. Vincent discriminated against no one. He was fast. He was efficient. He was ruthless. Working for hire meant that these victims wouldn't be tied back to him. And even if his involvement came to light, rival gangs never blamed him. He was just the facilitator. The person who hired him was the one at fault. Everyone in New York City learned not to cross Vincent Call. Everyone except for one. As Vincent's infamy and power rose, so did other gangs' spite and resentment. But the only real problem was Dutch Schultz, Vincent's old boss and mentor, the man who had plucked him away from a life of petty crime and turned him into one of the most feared mobsters in town. There was bad blood now, but Vincent had to admit, if it wasn't for Dutch Schultz, he would be nothing. Because before he was Vincent Mad Dog Call, he was simply an immigrant orphan named Inshin Okala. Vincent Call's family, like thousands of others, had come to New York at the turn of the century in search of a better life. Vincent was born on July 20, 1908, in County Donegal, Ireland. Before he was even a year old, his father Toali decided to move the family, including Vincent and his seven siblings, to the United States. The Ocalas became the Calls and settled in the Bronx. But the better life and opportunities never came. 
For most of his childhood, Vincent's family was trapped in poverty. Five of his seven siblings died. His father ran away and was never heard of again, and when Vincent was 11, his mother died of tuberculosis, worn out after years of trying to provide for her children. Vincent's older sister tried to raise him and his last surviving brother, Peter, in their small apartment. The elderly landlady looked after them, but they needed money for rent and food, and well-paying jobs were hard to come by, especially for children like themselves. In order to survive, Vincent and Peter turned to crime. It started with shoplifting food and money from local stores. They slowly escalated to muggings and eventually joined one of the many small street gangs that ran through their neighborhood. When Vincent was 12, he was arrested for the first time for unlawful entry into private property. The court mandated him to attend Catholic reform school. But the discipline didn't take. Vincent was expelled from every reform program he joined. He was incorrigible. Eventually, Vincent was sent home. With nowhere to turn and no parents to look after him, Vincent and his brother Peter joined another street gang, the Gophers, the most powerful of the early street gangs in Hell's Kitchen. The Gophers were mostly made up of young Irish men whose families had immigrated into the West Side like Vincent's had. Its members were rebellious young boys like Vincent who had turned to the streets for income and companionship. They weren't really an organized crime group so much as a band of rascals. Their main specialties were burglarizing small shops and pool halls, fighting with other small gangs, and harassing passers-by. At their peak in 1907, there were believed to have been about 500 members in the Gophers, making them one of the largest street gangs in the city. But by the time Vincent and Peter Call joined in the early 20s, their size and influence had dwindled. Vincent quickly grew bored of petty crime. Not long after joining the Gophers, and only four years after his first arrest, Vincent was arrested again in 1924, this time for carrying a gun. He was 16. This would become a recurring pattern for Vincent. Minor arrests, brief stints in jail, and a triumphant return to the streets. By the time he reached age 23, Vincent had been arrested a dozen times, something he carried like a badge of honor. Each arrest only made him more bold. Even as a teenager in what he considered a mediocre street gang, Vincent had started to make a name for himself. He developed a reputation for being a wild child of the streets. No robbery or shakedown was too difficult for Vincent. Anyone who dared stand up to him came to regret it. He could hurt people deeply and slowly. He could make them talk or not talk. And if it came to it, he could make someone disappear without leaving a trace. He moved smoothly and quietly. He was so successful at extorting and threatening his chosen targets that powerful people, from politicians to low-level mobsters, started to hire him personally as their enforcer. After a few of these intimidation jobs, Vincent started to amass a small fortune. He was good at what he did, and it paid him well. He and his siblings moved out of the decaying apartment they'd grown up in and into a real house. Vincent started to dress better and pay more attention to his appearance. 
the teenage gangster would go out in tailored suits, silk shirts, double-breasted Chesterfield overcoats, and his signature hat, a pearl-gray fedora, always worn at a rakish angle. He wanted his image to speak as much about him as his reputation. That's how he started to sneak into the newspapers. Vincent himself wasn't yet known outside of the criminal underground, but he liked to hang around people who were. He made sure to always appear presentable, even more remarkable. He liked to give off an air of notoriety, even if he wasn't quite notorious yet. By the mid-1920s, Vincent and Peter were ready to move away from the gritty streets. They were nearly adults, and it was time to enter a new, more legitimate life of crime with a bigger gang. Vincent never stopped wanting to grow. This was his American dream. Luckily, his reputation as a shakedown artist had caught the ears of the high-level gangsters in the more powerful mobs. Vincent and Peter were offered positions as armed guards for Dutch Schultz's illegal beer delivery trucks. Dutch Schultz was one of the biggest and most important bootleggers in the city. Prohibition was in full swing, and Schultz controlled most of the speakeasies and the alcohol that was served in them. Schultz had personally asked for Vincent Call, the street kid whose violent scare tactics had every debtor in town on their toes. This was the opportunity to prove himself Vincent had been waiting for. He took it without thinking twice. Vincent and Peter went out for dinner to celebrate. This would certainly elevate them to new heights. But the higher one rises, the harder one falls. Only one of them would make it out of this deal alive. Coming up, we'll follow the Cole brothers in their first and possibly last foray into the world of bootlegging. Now back to the story. Before the Prohibition, New York City's gangs were made up almost exclusively of low-level criminals and street kids who committed petty crimes like pickpocketing and shoplifting. There were the Wyos, an Irish gang that controlled Manhattan in the late 1800s. Their name came from their battle cry, which assimilated a bird or an owl call. The Mulberry Boys took over Mulberry Street around the same time. They were also called the Dead Rabbits because of the dead rabbits impaled on pikes they showed off as they marched on the streets. In the Bronx, there were the Plug Uglies, who wore oversized plug hats as their signature look. But these gangs were hardly organized crime syndicates. They were in it more for the thrill of the fight than for any legitimate business reason. When the Prohibition arrived, some of the people in these gangs saw a growth opportunity for illegal business dealings. Drugs, alcohol, gambling. The government had restricted access, and demand was still rising. Whoever controlled those industries would control untold sums of money. By the mid-1920s, the Italian and Irish mobs were beginning to gain ground. And thanks to Dutch Schultz, Vincent and Peter Call were right in the middle of it. Dutch Schultz was one of the many mobsters whose profile and fortune rose alongside the prohibition regulations. He was the son of a barkeeper, and he quickly built his empire on what became known as speakeasies, illegal liquor stores, and nightclubs. Schultz brewed his own beer in private distilleries hidden through the city. 
then sold it to speakeasies for distribution. He was one of the best in the business, perhaps the very best. But the prohibition was open season for bootleggers. Everyone was trying to get to the top, and they were willing to knock down anyone in their way. Rival gangs were constantly trying to overtake Schultz's territory and steal his business. He needed to assert his dominance. He needed someone with a talent for intimidation, someone who wasn't scared of getting his hands dirty, someone young, ruthless, and violent. Someone like Vincent Cole. Schultz had ears all around town, and he had heard about this young kid from the Gophers gang who was pretty on the outside, but ruthless on the inside. He took a chance and offered him a job. Vincent started working for Schultz when he was in his late teens. First, he simply guarded his trucks, but he soon graduated to a position as a debt enforcer. He quickly became an invaluable part of Schultz's day-to-day operations. As Schultz's empire grew in territory, power, and influence, the stakes became higher. The debts were bigger. The people involved were more dangerous. The potential jail sentences were longer. So Vincent got another promotion, from debt collector to Schultz's personal hitman and assassin. If a rival needed to disappear, Vincent made it happen. Sometimes he was tasked with kidnapping a debtor until they paid up, or holding people hostage until they bent to Schultz's orders. Schultz was looking for a violent young man who would take care of his business, but Vincent tended to go above and beyond what was asked of him. He was 19 years old and ambitious. He wanted to stand out, he wanted to impress, but sometimes his eagerness got him into trouble. In 1927, Schultz asked Vincent to go check on Anthony Borello, the owner of a large speakeasy in a bustling part of town. Borello was giving him a hard time, refusing to sell Schultz's bootleg alcohol. He was already selling liquor from other mobs, and he thought adding another supplier would just complicate things. All Vincent had to do was convince him to let go of the other liquor provider and sell Schultz's liquor exclusively instead. Shake him a little bit, scare him, maybe hurt him, but not too much. Schultz needed Borello's business. Killing him was not an option. But as Schultz would learn, Vincent was not much of a listener. Vincent made sure to go to Borello's office in the middle of the day, which was after hours for a speakeasy joint. He knew Borello was usually by himself in his office. No customers, no security guards, only one door to escape through. Vincent came by himself, as usual. He thought taking on jobs alone would help his reputation. Yes, he was part of a gang, but it was Vincent Cole you really needed to fear. Vincent always started by talking. It was his warm-up. Sweet talk that would go nowhere. He tried to convince Borello nicely to switch to Schultz as his distributor. Borello refused. Vincent kept talking, but nothing he said was going to change Borello's mind. He escalated to threats, but Borello was still unmoved. Schultz had instructed Vincent to scare Borello, maybe rough him up a little, but nothing too much. But Borello's stoic disposition really bothered Vincent. He didn't even flinch at his threats. It was disrespectful. Vincent destroyed Borello's office. Borello tried to run, but Vincent had him cornered. 
Vincent pinned him down and punched him mercilessly until he lost consciousness. He kept hitting him and hitting him and hitting him until Borello was dead. Vincent Call was arrested for the murder of Anthony Borello. It certainly wasn't his first arrest, and it wouldn't be his last. But Schultz pulled on his network of crooked cops to make the charges disappear. Vincent was too valuable for Schultz to lose. He usually got results. But this time, Schultz was not happy with him. This was strike one. Vincent's behavior did not get any better. Although he didn't commit another impromptu murder after that first incident, he constantly disobeyed his orders with reckless acts of violence that put entire operations at risk. He was great at a physical level, but not so good at the rational. Vincent was driven by rage, while Schultz was driven by brains. This partnership would only work so long as Vincent stuck to his orders. But Vincent felt that his position with Schultz had become monotonous. He was an indispensable asset, and yet he felt taken for granted. The money was good, but he wasn't being truly challenged or appreciated. Vincent had always gotten bored easily, and he got defiant easily, too. He was 21 years old now, a grown adult, not a scrappy street kid. He'd always wanted to embark on his own jobs, and he was certain that whatever he did, Schultz's protection would always keep him safe. Whenever Vincent made mistakes, Schultz was always right behind him to clean them up. He was untouchable, and he had the perfect scheme to put into action. In 1929, on a quiet evening when they had not much else to do, Vincent convinced his brother Peter and a couple other members of their gang to commit a robbery on a whim. Sticking around Vincent usually meant a good time, and the other gangsters had started to trust him almost as much as they did Schultz. They were more than willing to be Vincent's accomplices. Vincent took one of Schultz's cars and drove up to the Bronx. They chose a dairy, a business that none of them had anything to do with. Vincent passed out some jackets and guns and told his friends the plan. They would walk right in, pretending to be the night guards, and stick up the cashier. They walked in, pulled out their guns, and shot a few rounds into the air. Vincent had a flair for dramatics. He walked into the cashier's room, emptied the safe, and they were off. It was as easy as that. Vincent forgot about the money almost as soon as he bagged it up. He didn't need it. The thrill of committing the crime was what he was really after. Up until that point, Vincent had always started out by following Schultz's orders. He would go too far while scaring someone or he would execute a plan a little differently than instructed. But this was the first time he had done something completely by himself and off the books. Even though the plan was successful, Schultz was not happy when he found out about it. His men were not to be committing robberies without his permission. He confronted Vincent, expecting to receive at least an apology from him, but instead, Vincent demanded to be made his equal partner in running the gang. Schultz was speechless. This was strike two. The relationship between Call and Schultz never recovered after that. Schultz stopped the conversations about partnership immediately. He made it clear that was never going to happen. 
he kept Vincent around, but started assigning the more important jobs to someone else. Vincent didn't press the partnership offer. That was really more of a test to see how valuable he was to Schultz. And he'd gotten his answer. Schultz was one misstep away from getting rid of him. Vincent did not wait around for strike three. By the start of 1930, less than a year after he committed the Bronx robbery, Vincent decided to break away from Schultz's gang and start his own crew. He took his brother Peter and a few other members with him and set up his territory in Bronx and Harlem. He developed enough relationships in that area throughout his years with Schultz, so the transition was quick and easy. But things were not about to stay easy. Vincent had betrayed Dutch Schultz, one of the most powerful gangsters in the city. And Schultz knew him well enough to hit him in the only place that would really hurt. Up next, we'll dive into the war between Vincent and his old mentor, Dutch Schultz. Only one kingpin can rise victorious. Now, back to the story. In 1930, after just a few years of working for Dutch Schultz, 22-year-old Vincent Call decided to leave and start his own gang. He took with him about a dozen other gangsters, including his brother Peter, who had been by his side since they were children. Peter was Vincent's second-in-command. They had risen up among Schultz's ranks together, and together they could take over the streets of New York. Peter was more rational and level-headed than Vincent. He took over the business side of operations, while Vincent handled the brute force. Schultz did not take the news of Vincent's departure well, to put it lightly. Vincent had made off with many of his most trusted and effective associates, and stolen some of his most valuable customers to boot. But more than that, Schultz felt personally betrayed. Schultz had been the one who plucked him out of the street gangs and given him all the fortune and infamy he now had. Without him, Vincent Call would probably still be shoplifting from grocery stores, or else he would have been stabbed to death by now. Schultz had been his mentor, almost his father figure. But from the moment Vincent decided to leave, Schultz swore to get revenge. It started with simple intimidation. Schultz would send some of his thugs to bully Call's gang or to circle the territories they'd claimed. Vincent fought back, trying to assert his dominance as best he could. From the start, Vincent knew that his strongest suit wasn't going to be bootlegging or moving illegal substances. Business wasn't what he was good at. He left that to Peter. He decided to focus his energy on what he had excelled at when he was working for Schultz, kidnappings and hit jobs. Money started to pour in, and other gangs quickly noticed. Everyone used kidnapping and murder as methods to improve their business or destroy someone else's. But Vincent Call was one of the only people in town who made a living almost exclusively through violence. This line of work proved that Vincent was loyal to no one but the highest bidder. He would work for whichever gang was offering him the most money that day. As a result, he was hired by everyone, but trusted by no one. As Vincent's gang became more successful and well-known, Schultz's intimidation became more violent. 
Peter convinced Vincent that they needed to strike back. They had to make a statement, not only to Schultz, but to every gang in the city, that the Call brothers were not to be messed with. Vincent was hesitant at first, but his brother was right. They couldn't look like cowards or their business model would be ruined. So he followed his brother's advice. A few days later, Vincent gunned down two of Schultz's closest associates, Slats Bologna and Frank Amato, as they were making a drop-off. Schultz was furious, even more than he'd ever been before. Vincent had started the bloodshed. He was more than willing to retaliate. This was now a war. On May 30th, 1931, Peter Call was driving down a Harlem street, heading to a business meeting. They were in early talks about a potential hit job. Peter went alone, as usual. If a situation didn't call for Vincent's violent tactics, he preferred to handle the negotiations on his own. It was less messy that way. But there was no meeting. Before Peter made it to the end of the road, a group of Schultz's associates ducked out of nearby buildings and shot him down. Peter Cole was killed immediately. Vincent flew into a rage of grief. Without his brother, his right-hand man and most trusted friend, he had nothing left to lose. Two days later, on June 2nd, 1931, the Call gang raided and attacked a garage that Schultz used as a drop point. They destroyed 10 trucks and about 150 vending machines. A few days later, Vincent killed Luis De La Rosa, another one of Schultz's most trusted associates. Over the next several weeks, Call's gang targeted several members of Schultz's mob. Both sides were thirsty for blood. In the end, around two dozen people were killed in the war between the two gangs, including several innocent bystanders. As usually happens with these kinds of feuds, the waters eventually calmed down. But though the open fire stopped, Schultz and Call were never able to work together again. Their paths didn't regularly cross either. As Vincent had already discovered, he had no business savvy. He couldn't run an illegal liquor distillery or a speakeasy, not without Peter. The brains of the operation had been killed, and all they had now was the brute force. So Vincent Call capitalized on the one thing that he did well, intimidation. Vincent Call's gang now dealt exclusively in hit jobs and kidnappings. He would kidnap anyone for ransom, high-ranked politicians, celebrities, most wanted gangsters. He'd been doing this his entire life. There was no job too big for him. People with grudges or debts or someone to get rid of would hire Vincent to scare, kidnap, or kill their enemies, and he would do the deed. He knew how to hurt people without killing them and how to kill people without hurting them. He knew how to make people pay, and they always did. Even bigger gangs were afraid to bother Vincent. In fact, they knew it was in their best interest to stay on his good side. Vincent took particular pride in his kidnapping of famed member of the Hell's Kitchen Irish mob, George Big Frenchy Demange. Vincent set up a fake meeting with him, and when Demange arrived, Call's gang kidnapped him and asked for $40,000 for his release. With inflation, that would be nearly $665,000 today. Demange's associates delivered the money a mere 18 hours after he was taken, 
a personal record for Vincent. The gang's other members would often play smaller roles as getaway drivers, backup security, or additional shooters, but Vincent always did the heavy lifting, and he was the one who took all the credit. He had managed to make a name for himself with the big boys. He was no longer just an enforcer for a bigger mobster. He was a force of his own. He had made it. In 1931, an ambitious new bootlegger named Joseph Rock hired Vincent to take out Joseph Tough Joey Rao, one of Dutch Schultz's associates. It was a big job, one that would pay well, but relatively run-of-the-mill. The real draw was that he'd be taking down one of his rival's top men. The feud had just barely cooled down, and Vincent was still seething from his brother's murder only months earlier. Vincent shot Joey Rao down on a busy street in Harlem, and he did it with enthusiasm. It was an easy paycheck and a personal victory. If only he had seen the group of children playing nearby. Vincent Call was about to find out he was not as untouchable as he'd always believed. Thanks again for listening to Kingpins. Join us next week as we explore the accident that led to Vincent Call's downfall, his strategies to avoid legal persecution, and the tragic final days of the Call Gang. You can find Kingpins, as well as all of ParCast's other podcasts, on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn, or your favorite podcast directory. Many of you have asked how to help the show. And if you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. We'll see you next time. Kingpins was created by Max Cutler and is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Carrie Murphy, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Kingpins is written by Jorge Molina and stars Kate Leonard and Howell Hargett. <laughs>